So I've got the first reading for tonight, and it's on page 7 of your zine. It's from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Praise the Lord. So, um, thanks, Veronica. And uh, I want to read, I want to uh, do Psalm 136. We're going to do it in a in a new way for 6 p.m., which is responsively, um, Psalm 136, isn't that a lovely passage about giving, and we'll explore it in a moment's time, but the psalm passage is there because we're basically saying everything comes from God anyway. You know, you, you, if you tend to think that the, the world or the things that you have are from blind, impersonal forces or maybe just by human ingenuity and, and power, you'd be wrong. You know, everything we have is from God's hands, and Psalm 136 is one of those psalms that makes that clear. So what we're going to do is we're going to say this psalm responsibly, where I say the first part that's unbolded and you respond with the words that are bold. But you'll notice there's no um, change. You're going to say the same thing uh, maybe 20 times. In fact, it's going to get repetitive. It's going to feel repetitive as you say it. But there's something genuinely powerful about saying the same thing over and over, something instructive for the heart. Have a look on page 8, Psalm 136. Let's uh, say this psalm together, but responsibly. Uh, let these words shape your heart. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters who made the great lights, 
the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night. And he remembered us in our lower state and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, show us your heart. Jesus Christ, show us your love. O Holy Spirit, show us your life in new and fresh ways this evening. May the power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in us. May tonight in many ways be just the beginning, as Leo said uh, earlier on. We pray all of this, expecting you to act. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, The Barefoot Investor is a, a, a book right now. It's big right now. Can I have a show of hands for those who've either seen or heard of this book? Show of hands. Keep your hand up if you've read it. Oh, you see, you haven't got enough money in your bank account. By the way, I've got this book at home, but I forgot to bring it, so I just photocopied the front page and put it on a St. Philip's book. <laughs> but the good thing about that is it's bigger, and that's better for a, an aid, right? A visual aid? You with me? Okay, good. Scott Pape wrote the book. Um, uh, it's a bestseller in Australia. He's the finance presenter on Seven News, which would normally be alarm bells. But it's good. Very down-to-earth advice on how to get your financial house in order. I enjoyed the book. The advice in many ways is not new, it's just freshly told. Uh, you know, move to a bank with no fees. Um, put $2,000 aside for difficult times and keep it there. Put X percentage of your income into household expenses, Y into splurge for all the coffees, Z into percentage into fire ex extinguisher for the unusual expenses that come up, a flat tire, etc. And another percent in smile to save up for something that you're really looking forward to, etc., etc. Superannuation, investment, get it all right, all that. Then cut up your credit cards instead of giving your money to bankers with BMWs. It's a lot of fun. Very funny book, actually, and very practical. But one of the things that stood out to me when I read it is how long it took for Scott Pape to get to generosity. I'm not criticizing him, I think he belongs to an era in many ways. Step nine is living a legacy, which a Christian can look at through a gospel lens, but it's step nine that he gets to leaving a legacy. In the Christian worldview, generosity is step, step one. Everything you have is from God, Psalm 136, and is to be used to make his love known which endures forever. And if that's the case, then thoughtful, intentional, wise, not stupid, wise giving is step one. And I know that for a number of reasons, but not least of which is the very practical advice that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 16 when he says, on the first day of every week, every one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. At the right amount in keeping with your income, the smart amount in keeping with your income on the first day of every week. If I can put it this way, on payday, set it aside. And I found this principle to be very liberating. We're starting a new series next week, making our way through 
Paul's letter to the Galatians for about eight weeks. It's going to be liberating itself. But we've decided to do a one-off today on giving, and it's called to be generous is to be God-like. You like that? We could also say to be humble is to be God-like, or to be gracious to be God-like. But to be generous is to be like God or godly. I'll never forget one of the first times that someone was out of the blue generous towards me outside of blood family. I'd said to a group of people on a beach mission, I'd said that I couldn't go to a particular camp for young people, a conference in the Blue Mountains. I just couldn't afford it. I was 17 years old and yada yada. That week, an anonymous bank check came in the mail for the cost of the camp, the full cost of the camp. The camp was like Rivendell, if I can put it that way. About $150 or so. I was delighted. I pulled out this letter. It was anonymous. Um, couldn't believe it. I paid for the convention, turned up, accommodation. And I heard the gospel for the first time in a fresh way. I heard the grace of God. I think probably for the first time that I could be right with God on the basis of Christ's death on the cross, the very thing we'll be looking at in Galatians. That person who gave me $150, of course I rang the bank and they just told me whose bank check it was. That was not a good idea. <laughs> anyway, her name was Jo, uh, I found, found it out. Um, I can't thank her enough. Even today, I still see her on conferences at that same venue 30 years later and I still thank her and she still blushes. What I want to do now is take you through the text here on page 7 fairly quickly, 2 Corinthians 8, and then I want to conclude with four reasons to give and four things to do. So if you're writing notes in the first half of this talk, you're writing all around those, those notes and then we'll get to the four reasons to give and four things to do uh, as a conclusion. In the text, 2 Corinthians 8, we are dropped into a discussion Paul is having with the church in ancient Corinth, which is now currently Greece. We're eavesdropping in as Paul urges them to give to provide extra resources for Paul to pass on to churches that are struggling. At points, Paul's argument is somewhat cheeky and provocative as he compares, really, the Corinthian church with the Macedonian churches, verse 1. Verses 2 to 5, they were so poor, extreme poverty, and yet they were generous. So effectively, Paul is saying, you need to pulse check your own heart, O Corinthian churches. In verses 6 to 8, that's the pulse check, verses 6 to 8, verse 8 in particular, I love this, I'm not commanding you We don't have to command you. The gospel isn't about a command at this point. But I want to test the sincerity of your love. I want to pulse check your heart by comparing it with the earnestness of others, namely the Macedonian churches. Verse 2 is amazing if you want to sort of pulse check against another church or another set of churches. Verse 2, of the Macedonian churches, in the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that fascinating? A very severe trial and extreme poverty often, not always, often ends up with um, welling up with bitterness or anger. It's possible, right? The, the, gener the rich generosity wells up from this vortex of pain and pressure. 
Like the Macedonian Christians were experiencing a severe trial, perhaps suffering, uh, persecution. They had what he calls extreme poverty, and yet they had something else in the mix. They had another ingredient in there, which is namely overflowing, overflowing joy. And it appears, verse 2, look at the verse, it appears that God uses those three things to cause them to give them this grace of rich generosity. And not just that, verse 4, but they urgently pleaded to give. And I say that like there's another kind of pleading. But key to Paul's appeal is not a command, right? Talks like this are often, you know, we all hear it. Um, we go, yeah, 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 nothing changes. So you're working at, walk out feeling disconnected or, or guilty. But Paul will have none of that because Paul's appeal, it comes from an experience of the grace of God. Look at verse nine. For you know, I love that, you know it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. An exchange happened. The rich, Jesus, for the poor, me, Yet for your sakes, the rich one became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich, spiritually rich. Which, by the way, is the absolute drop-dead raison d'etre, the reason we do the city care lunch. You know God, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You know what God is like, so to be generous then is to be God-like. Jesus was rich, he had it all, Eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spilling out from him all of creation at the bosom of the Father, yet he gave it all up, became a man. He gave it all up for you, lived this broken life, suffered, and went to the cross for you so that through his poverty you might become rich, profoundly rich. By the way, before you've earned a dime, Already rich. See. And so he said to the Corinthians, if this is true, stop being so miserly, especially since you have so many other gifts, verse seven. Look at verse seven. You excel in so many things, right? In faith and speech and in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love that we've kindled in you. The gospel's done that. So if that's true, then see that you also excel in this grace of giving that the Macedonians appear to have. So verse six, complete what you started, finish the work, verse 11, that you started last year. You've got plenty right now, uh, verse 14, but you'll you'll have your time of need. There'll be swings and roundabouts uh, in this broken world. Uh, You know, give now, uh, but you will eventually receive, which is to be blessed according to Jesus, but since it's more blessed to give, then do that as well. I was blessed to receive that $150 to go on that conference, but I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that my blushing friend Joe was more blessed. Well, according to Jesus, she was, for she can say that her $150 produced a, a believer in the grace of God. And that's a pretty good investment. I mean, you can't um, plan that. Only God does, the, you know. Cast your bread upon waters. Who knew what was going to happen? You know, I could have taken, turned up and sat on the back and checked, you know. But it produced a believer in God. More blessed to give than to receive. 
Here at church, by the way, we do that by giving to other churches and ministries who have need. You do your own thing, by the way. I love how it can't be controlled by the church. I love that. One of my favorite things. You do your thing with the gifts that God has given you. But here at church, if you put a dollar on the plate, 10% of it goes to other churches and ministries that are struggling. So out of our giving income, we give to certain ministries. And that chart up the back that Andy mentioned, you know, 8.30, by the way, the 8.30 congregation, they come in, they see something different, they look over it all, and they go back down into their seats and they think, that's good news, and they work out what they're going to do on Monday morning, and then they go and do it. 10.15 and 6 p.m., chat, 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 walk past the sign, don't have a look. And by the way, Andy's told you to go have a look, but I guarantee you'll chat, chat, chat all the way out to Hart's Pub. But don't do that. Well, I love your chat chats, don't get me wrong, but have a look at it. Because on that board, you'll see where your mission giving goes. If you give to this church this year, say, 1000 bucks, $100 will go to Southern African missionaries, including Nathan Lovell and Diane, who will be at Rivendell. Your giving goes to Burkina Faso, a woman teaching, uh, training leaders for churches in West Africa. You put $10,000 into the plate this year, then $1,000 will go to Spain and Ireland, and believe me, they need it, as well as mission in Australia, in rural Western Australia, in Bankstown and Barala. It goes to ministries amongst refugees, in particular Syrian refugees, and if you give, your money will go to an, an indigenous church that's been planted in Redfern. It goes there. I tell you right now, if you give $20,000, $2,000 it goes to, etc. In Cape Town, you brought a family together because you give here. That is, there's a wife and two children that are with a young man called Moffat, no relation. And in Barella, when I rang them to say that, they had, that we have $10,000 to give to them uh, because of the saints here at Churchill, there was tears on the other end of the line. All places of need, all themselves giving generously in many ways, but all thankful for your gift. So giving, why do a sermon like this? Well, the answer is I do one, at least one every year. Jesus talked a lot about giving, a lot, of, a lot about money. He knew that at the heart of the gospel is generosity, that there really is a, a spiritual bloodline between the wallet and the heart. That's one of the ways of describing Christian faith is the experience of being caught up in a divine generosity that centers around Jesus Christ. You know, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other reason is a very practical one. Um, we've known for decades, quite frankly, that this church spends more than we receive in ordinary income. Now we can do that because we have uh, some extraordinary income that we wanna use better than we currently are. Uh, that is, we can do that, we can spend more than we receive because of the generosity of previous generations. But if you pick up the annual general meeting notes, or if you're present at it, and there should be some on the back table, if not, go to our website, you'll see the notes and download them from there. But in the annual general meeting notes, I said these words, in setting up vision, by the way, I said the Paris Council have been trying to cut costs in order to have our spending match what we receive. Of course, we don't want to lose any staff, but it's worth saying here, and people want to know this, by the way, they want to know ahead of time, uh, that if we can't make up some of that deficit during 2018 and then 19 and then 20, and there's a plan, 
then we will most likely need to reconfigure our staff team, perhaps letting go of one or more people. It's possible to do that. And I said at the AGM, to that end, if you think we're doing the right thing, and you might not think that, by the way, you might not think we're doing the right thing, but if you think we're doing the right thing, then we'll need three things to happen. Number one, those who aren't currently giving ought to give something. By the way, 20 bucks a week is what? What's that? Uh, $1,000 a year, isn't it? That right? I do my math so badly. $20 is <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Make me an actuary, I dare you. <laughs> um, you know, that's sort of what you might spend on a couple of lunches during the year. Uh, but if, if 30 or 40 people did that, boom, we'd start to move that deficit. Those who aren't giving ought to give something. Those who are giving might like to review their giving. You might need to review it down for various reasons, but perhaps you could review it up. And those who are able might consider one-off larger donations, even if you're uh, giving from uh, regularly at the same time. And there's a person in the morning congregation that's already beginning to do that in a, in a five-figure realm, which is remarkable and lovely and beautiful. Okay, normal caveats for the sermon. Uh, many of you are visiting today. You will learn today to be generous where you are, not necessarily here. God bless you. Some of you are not followers of Jesus Christ. You know not the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know it. You'd, maybe you'd like to know it. <laughs> Alpha, Wednesday. You'll find your reasons to be philanthropic, and I hope you do find them. You know, a philanthropic Australia is a better Australia. There's no doubt about it. Some of you are giving just the right amount, and we thank God for you. But some of us need a knock on the door, a pulse check, just like the Corinthian church did. I needed one. Younger man, I remember that growing up moment, right? I thought, oh, well, other people, I've got nothing, so other people do it. I kept hearing that generosity was good. I knew people who were generous. It was, I knew it was in theory contagious, but I resisted. I had a lot of fears, had a lot of desires, had a bit of credit debt, and I wanted to pay that off, but I didn't do any actual change in my behavior. And so I was sort of trapped in a cycle, I think, of stinginess. I was giving in lots of other ways, don't get me wrong. That's very important to say, uh, but I hadn't figured out the money thing. And I think it, it meant that my heart had a little atrophy. But I did find a way out, and I've got further to go, don't get me wrong. But it's lovely to feel your heart expand a little bit, because that's one of the joys that many of you know uh, when it comes to giving. So let me conclude. Four reasons to give and uh, four things to do. Four reasons to give. This is on page nine, if you're writing notes. Firstly, overflow. And I don't mean overflow of money. That might be true. I don't mean that. What I mean is an overflow of the heart from God to the world in which he has placed you. The truth is you don't have to generate a generous spirit. Anybody tells you is going to give you a whole works-based guilty thing going on. Nah, let God do his thing in your life. Let him well up in your life this spirit. In, uh, in verse one of our text, Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace that God gave the Macedonian Christians. He did it. Miroslav Volf observed, the true God gives so that we can become joyful givers. We can pass it on, overflow, right? Not just, and not be just self-absorbed receivers. So get to know God through Jesus Christ and start to be like him. Let him mold you, shape you. Let his spirit well up 
in generosity and in overflow. Second reason to give is joy, your joy. Uh, Giving isn't a chore to be done out of duty, and when it is, that's no fun. In fact, I think giving is an antidote to a poison called joylessness. As our Lord taught us, and I believe him, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and some of you know exactly what we mean. It also begins to chip away at your fears. When we are only thinking about what we have and what we want, we're a bundle of desires. The irony is that in sort of chasing it all, and uh, not, not, uh, you know, we lose the joy. In fact, the barefoot investor in many ways is a, is a, is a, is a not Christian version of, of getting things in order so that joy can come. But it's even bigger than that for a Christian. It's great to get these things worked out and to move beyond fear. When we conclude our service in a few moments time, we're gonna sing these great words in Be Thou My Vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Those things often create fear in us, but I heed not riches, I heed not man's empty praise, because you are my inheritance, O God, now and always. You and you only, the first in my heart, high King of heaven, you are my treasure, my treasure thou art joy. Second reason. Third reason is responsibility, which is different from generosity. I'll come to that in a moment. If you're a member of this church, then we are each responsible to it. If you're not, be generous where you are, or be responsible where you are, I should say. We are responsible for it. If one gives and another doesn't, then the the former is in some sense paying for the latter. The one who gives in some sense is paying for the latter. Now there will always be in a society and in a church, if I can be a bit cheeky, lifters and leaners, and in fact the grace of God and this passage itself demands that there be lifters and leaners. By which I mean, it doesn't mean that all will give the same amount, widows might. Some have means, some do not. But believe me, by the way, those who have means remember the times when they didn't, swings and roundabouts. Some have bad debts that must be paid. I can, some of you are like, your heart's beating even mentioning it. Um, it might take a year or two or three. Um, I think the Barefoot Investor is a good place to go, quite frankly, uh, and this helped. Some have bad debts that must be paid. Others are free of such debts. Some have come into an inheritance. Some are struggling to make the payments. Some are, have come into a windfall, or you have, but others of you are on fixed incomes. You just know exactly what it's going to be. But I think giving something is important, even if it's minimal, perhaps because you're paying off some bad debt. Do it. Give something, even as you pay off the bad debt, so that when you do pay off the bad debt, then you can be a you can be, start to be generous here and elsewhere. But we need to take a responsible place in the life of this church. Fourth is generosity. If you're a member of this church and you're in part responsible, but generosity goes beyond responsibility. Generosity is when you aren't just giving sort of what you believe you ought to give. When, it's when you give what you ought to give. Somebody might say, well, you've, you know, in one sense you've just... Hey, you've just taken up your place in the life. But no one would necessarily say, wow, 
wow, the generosity. But generosity is when giving spills beyond responsibility to an overflow of joy. I'll tell you what generosity is. It's this. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's not just being responsible. That's the grace of God and it drives us. So now uh, briefly, four things to do. I presume that most of you have heard of barn raising. It's an ancient practice, still happens in Amish communities in, uh, in the United States. It's a collective action to raise one structure for one family, for example, over a weekend. Done regularly, it nourishes the entire community as each person gets in, pulls their weight, uses their gifts. Not everybody has the same job. Some people are stronger than others. And in that sense, on the building, they are contributing in some sense more than others. But each person will find the job that's right for them on the day of the barn raising. The idea is simple. I may not be helped directly, but the health of the whole community rests on the decision of each person to put their hand up and contribute willingly. See, that is so revolutionary. And it's a lovely metaphor for the building of Christ's church. We believe, along with millions, that the local church is the hope of the world because the risen Jesus is the hope of the world. But the church is built, Ephesians 4, as each part does its work. As we are generous with all the gifts that God has given us, and in every way we may abound in grace. So four things to do, and you can see this on page nine, and you look at the first letter of each of those words, what does it spell? Go on, look. Life, you give your life in the end. Four things, life, labor, influence, finance, and expertise. Firstly, labor. God has gifted you in certain ways to do certain things. You can use your labor to help and serve others. Requires you to ask a question, what can you do? And how can you do it for the sake of others, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the city in which we live? You can use your labor. You can also use your influence. It's not just what you do, but when you speak and think on certain topics, others listen, they hear you. How can you use your influence for the kingdom? How can you move towards people and bring them to Christ? It requires you to ask a question. Who do I need to speak to? Can I arrange a time to meet with them? You can use your influence. You really can. Thirdly, you can use your finance. As we've been saying, on a certain day of the month, you will receive an income. Perhaps, mostly, many of you, maybe fortnightly. For many of us, it'll be a certain amount. You will have your responsibilities. You must fulfill them for basic living, family, debts. But on that day, work out what you'll give and to whom. Make it something, not nothing. Make it regular, even if you do one-offs to various things. And make it achievable and not silly. Be wise. And always discuss it with anyone who will be influenced by your decision, please especially a spouse, and be creative. Fourth and finally, you can use your expertise, your labor, your influence, your finance, your expertise. You've been given wisdom on certain things that others haven't because of time and experience. 
can you find ways to serve others knowing that God gave you not just the income, the house over your head, the food on your plate, but he gave you your experiences as well. Now to give your life, your labor, your influence, your finance, your expertise is all part of fulfilling our mission to the city to fill it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Miroslav Volf in the book Free of Charge, uh, he talks about a world where it's stripped of grace. It's the world in which we live. Um, giving and forgiving in a world stripped of grace. And he, he writes this. He says, no life worth living is possible without generosity. Even a newborn babe could not survive without generosity. And yet, from the get-go, we seem to be but one bundle of cravings that screams for satisfaction of needs that appear to go unfulfilled and for interests that feel threatened from all sides. And so we get grabby. That's the big sort of gap in the life of human beings, individually and collectively, a yawning gap between deep self-centeredness and true generosity. And he asks the question, can we bridge the gap? Well, the gospel bridges the gap. We give because God gives. We live by a creed, and inbuilt into that creed is responsibility and generosity. See, God knows the beautiful, joyful, mesmerizing power of a gospel-given generosity. It points to the gospel, it frees your heart, it keeps you interested and invested in certain things. It strengthens your commitment to a cause. It relieves genuine needs. Look at the table on the back, the, the, the white uh, partners board. It creates partnerships of joy. It aids people who do remarkable things. Generosity heals marriages and builds faith and community. And it teaches the heart to worry less. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. In fact, your generosity challenges a grabbing world and results in thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Father, take my life and let it be consecrated. Let it be consecrated, Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated to thee, to you, our Lord. Take my moments, take my days, take my voice, my lips, my hands, my feet, my love. Take my silver and my gold. Take my intellect. Take my will, take my heart and make it thine own. All of this will be your royal throne. We beg you to work this grace in us through Christ our Lord. Amen.